Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Over the course of this global pandemic in which various forms of isolation has now become the new norm, it's critical that we continue to organise in our communities to overcome these challenges. And that's why Dunn Street has partnered with organisations across Australia and the globe to train leaders, develop engagement strategies and empower people to organise in their local communities. So in 2020, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to make a difference, inspire and give hope to others and to build communities from the ground up. And to find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, you can hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. I've also been thinking about doing sponsorship reads from just random companies that I have no connection with whatsoever, like Dunkin' Donuts. I've watched that much Red Sox baseball over the, over the years. I pretty much know every sponsorship read that they do during the game, like Amiga Insurance, Auto Home Man Life. But I won't, and I digress. Speaking of America, on today's episode of Socially Democratic, your favourite weekly centre-left political and cultural podcast, uh, we've got Sam Schneidman back on the show today to talk about the... U.S. presidential elections. We're not talking about the primaries anymore because they're done. We finished with that, and now we're moving on to the general between the Trump and our man, Joe Biden. So Sam's going to be on today to talk a bit about um, the campaign ahead, how it's going to be a little bit different because of uh, the restrictions placed on uh, people in the states at the moment. We're going to talk a bit about digital organising. going to talk a little bit about what the battleground states will be uh, where the race can be won and lost, uh, just to sort of whet our appetite as we get closer and closer to November. And don't forget, if you want more updates on all of the things that are related to Socially Democratic or Dunn Street in general, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. That is follow Dunn Street on those social media platforms. And subscribe to Socially Democratic on your favourite podcast app, could be Apple Podcasts, could be Spotify, Stitcher. And if you are on Apple Podcasts, can you please leave us a review uh, and give us a rating? So let's get to today's episode. Okay, we're taping this one on a Thursday lunchtime in desolate Melbourne CBD. And it's been a while since we have had our good friend Sam Schneidman uh, on the podcast. Um, he has gone into big time lockdown hibernation um, and not much has happened really in the world of democratic primary politics um, for a while there. But um, obviously we have had um, a primary in Wisconsin and then a bunch of uh, announcements by various candidates, which has sort of brought the primary season to a conclusion. So we thought it would be a great time to get Sam back on the line. And he is on the line, but he's not in Brooklyn, New York. Sam, welcome back to uh, Socially Democratic. How are you? I'm good, mate. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me back. Where are you right now? And how is your health? I uh, Physically, I uh, seem to be healthy and safe, so I'm thankful for that. Mentally, I think I'm as scattered as anyone uh, who's been enduring quarantine for the last couple of months. Um, I'm in uh, Leicester, Vermont, which is uh, even more desolate than uh, whatever Melbourne CBD appears to be at the time. Um, and I'm in this, you know, little little farm community up in the heart of Bernie Country, trying to ride it out. You're in uh, you're in New England, kid. Good for you. Yes. 
Yes, I am. You, you get down to the, go to the packy, get a six of Sam. Ah, uh, no, I'm not not that into it. <laughs> I'm more on more on sort of like the isol, isolated solitary part of the uh, New England brand. Okay, you're not watching Nesson and catching some old Sox games from Fenway Pack. You're not doing that, kid. There's no, 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 no. I think like one of the uh, one of like the paradoxes of our new time is that you know we we've never been more connected and somehow we're like even busier than we've ever been. I think as people, some some are uh, who are lucky to still be employed. In all uh, seriousness, and just dropping my really shit New England accent for one moment, um, and we will t- obviously we'll dive into the the, the politics of um, the, the the Democratic primaries and turning our attention to the general uh, in a moment. But just on the ground, in um, I mean, as you said, it's hard to sort of get a sense of what people think because you're all you are also isolated, but. Um, you're certainly a lot more closer to the real impact of coronavirus in the United States than we are over here in Australia. How? What's your read on it since we last since we last spoke? Um, I think when we last spoke, I was trying to get my mind around what was truly happening. Um, I think that um, you know we were able to sort of perceive the scale of this crisis, at least in New York. Uh, but it was kind of hard to accept what that new reality would become on the other side of this. And now we are firmly in that new reality. And that sort of um, struggle to grapple with what was happening has now come into, I think, like this uh, sense of resignation of a new unchosen future. And, um, I can't speak for any, everybody, but, you know, personally speaking, uh, I'm quite frustrated, uh, with our government, the way our federal government has handled this, uh, a total lack of, um, uh, strategic planning and central coordination to marshal resources, um, get everybody on the same page. I think that has contributed to, um, more deaths. I think it's contributed to a higher than necessary infection rate. And I think that it has put more people in danger over the long term in terms of their exposure to this virus. When I think of, when I look at the the numbers um, and, you know, September 11 uh, and the moment those two um, planes hit the twin towers in New York, that really reshaped not just um, American politics and an American society, but it also reshaped the you know global um, politics and global society and, and how we all interrelate with each other. I think that anyone who is alive and uh, of age that can remember remembers those moments, what where they were and what was happening when when the, when September 11 occurred. Um, and one of the biggest impact immediately from it is just the de- you know the number of people that died uh, on that day um you know it was sort of i think it was three and a half thousand in in, in new york alone um no, that was total uh, in total right so, uh, yeah. so including the pentagon and obviously the the folks on the aircraft that crashed in pennsylvania um the death toll of this coronavirus for new york alone has well and truly exceeded that number um there was an interesting article by ben rhodes um uh, a couple of weeks back 
as the fatalities ticked over that September 11 and said, this is our new, re- this is, this, we, we can't refer to ourselves as living in a post-September 11 America now. We need to refer to ourselves as living in a post-corona. Well, not even post, but it will be a, a redefining of American politics. Do you feel that that is taking place right now? Are people sort of, is there a self-awareness of the impact that this is actually having on not just people in New York, but across all 50 states? Because it seems patchy in terms of the way that people are responding to it. Yeah, I think time will tell. Uh, ultimately, I believe that um, the comparison of this experience with coronavirus and 9-11 is not necessarily apt. Uh both are shocking, but in their own way. Um, 9-11 sort of uh, unfolded seemingly instantly. It was televisual. Everyone was watching it in real time and seeing what was happening. And uh, our interaction with coronavirus is um, a little bit um, slower in the way that it's come to the, to the forefront of uh, society. Uh, we don't necessarily, it's harder to pin who, uh, like we can blame for this. And, and, you know, there is debate and talk about whether this came out of a lab in China and to what, to what extent China is responsible, you know, time will, there'll be plenty of time for that discussion. Uh, but I think it's a little bit harder for us as individuals, as communities, as, as countries to pin the blame for a virus on a set of actors. Uh, and another thing about nine 11 is that it was a deliberate conscious mm. act. People made a choice to attack the United States of America. And when people choose to attack you, especially for political reasons, uh, you know, that gives you a strong foot to fall back on. And, Viruses are, uh, they don't care what your border is, what your nationality is, what your politics are. And I think, um, you know, we're sort of trying to come to grips with that. Now, where I think I am hopeful is that, you know, we went through uh, the shock of World War I, and then the Spanish influenza, uh, sort of contemporaneous with the end, going through 1920. And then we went through the shock of the Great Depression into World War II. And after both of those experiences, we emerged with, at least in the United States, a stronger society uh, that was more economically balanced. People in, you know, uh, after uh, certainly, you know, after World War II, we got things like the GI Bill. Eventually, we got Medicare and Medicaid, you know, a few decades on from that. Uh, We got people wanted federally subsidized mortgages. Uh, So there was a clamoring um, after this sense of shared sacrifice for a broader social contract. And what we are going through, at least in the United States, is a real test on whether we can go through a shared sacrifice and emerge as a stronger country. And, you know, ideally you have a strong, competent and capable leader to get you through that. Um, and I think that that, if anything is the defining part of this experience, 
is a totally inept president mm. and Congress. Let's then, that's a good segue into talking about how uh, you can change who that president is um, in November. Um, and before we do that, can we just recap since we last spoke on the podcast about the Democratic primaries? It was immediately following um, uh, the primaries, which were held on the Feast of St. Patrick, 17th of March, uh, that included Illinois, Ohio, Florida, and uh, Arizona from memory. Um, Bernie Sanders loses substantially across all of those states. Uh, we, we talked about that and broke that down, and we were sort of starting to ask the question, you know, how, how does Bernie stay in the race? Surprisingly, he doesn't suspend his campaign following those primary losses. Uh, I wouldn't read too much into that, honestly. I think, you know, he has, you know, done so in formality and is continuing to stay in to influence the platform, continue to push Joe Biden. And, you know, he's not sort of like running a shadow campaign or anything like that. No, I, I look. I, I say surprisingly, just because I kind of thought it would wrap up a lot quicker. I don't. And watching the way that uh, a lot of Democratic surrogates and and strategists commentary in the media, they didn't seem overly stressed. Uh, I feel like a lot of things were going on in the background to let Bernie just um, not rush him into making this decision. But it, that there was enough indicators out there in terms of what of his his fundraising efforts and and whatnot, and also the fact that the coronavirus. Um, pandemic was really starting to escalate at that time as well. And he seemed to be putting a lot of his efforts as a legislator into trying to deliver some good outcomes for working people as well. So yes, um, that, that point taken. Um, then just to recap, a number of primaries were rescheduled to deal with the fact that coronavirus and the social distancing and um, lockdowns were happening across states. So, and that included um, the moving of the um, Arkansas, Wyoming, Louisiana, and uh, Hawaiian primaries, both campaigns kind of both going to hibernation and shift whatever activities they were doing in terms of voter contact effort to online and, and phone banking from home. Weirdly enough, 7th of April, the Wisconsin uh, primary is uh, forced to go ahead by the Supreme Court. We'll come back to that and get your thoughts on that at some point. Um, Joe Biden wins quite substantially. Then Bernie finally suspends his campaign. Bernie endorses Biden's campaign. Obama then comes out and endorses Biden's campaign. Elizabeth Warren comes out and endorses Biden's campaign. And for the first time since 2004, we have a Democratic nominee as early as March. That brings us up to basically where we are today, in which we can now turn our attention to the general election campaign between young Joe Biden and old man Trump. Um, but before we do that, how do you, you know, on reflection, how do you think history will treat Bernie Sanders and his two attempts at seeking the nomination to be the presidential nominee for the Democratic Party, a party I will point out that he is not a member of? How, will, <laughs> how will, sorry, I had to do one dig there. How, will we, how, how do you think history will treat Bernie? I think any objective measure of Bernie Sanders uh, will have to be positive. And let's just look at the facts. I mean, he uh, was clear uh, even back in 2016 about why he was getting in the race. Uh, and from memory, it was basically for two reasons. One was to push the Democratic Party and the conversation into a more progressive direction. And it was to highlight the concerns of middle and working class people 
and to be a champion for them that they hadn't really had um, in a pr- prominent way, uh, it seemed, over the last uh, several decades of politics, you know, in a way that really channeled that anger and um, channeled the emotion of what it's like to be a member of that social class. And so I think when you look at um, his sort of involvement in politics over especially the last 10 years and you sort of you know base it off what he was trying to achieve it has to have been successful i mean if you think about it this way uh a 15 dollar minimum wage medicare for all the elimination of student debt uh putting climate change forward as the most one of the most important issue that we deal with as a society. Um, these are all mainstream policies, at least within the democratic side of politics right now, every single front runner for the democratic nomination, except Joe Biden, uh, supported elements of that agenda, whether it be, well, I guess Joe Biden also probably did. It's, you know, doesn't support Medicare for all or, you know, the Green New Deal or, uh, and eliminating student debt. But aspects of that were all, you know, every, every sort of not, uh, candidate in 2020 was supporting that stuff. Mm. And that's not going away. And I think if you also look at building sort of uh, the capacity of the Democratic Party – and the next generation of activists and candidates. It would be really interesting to see uh, how influential um, you know, Bernie Sanders is to those forthcoming leaders and emerging leaders uh, compared to even, say, Barack Obama. I think I'm not saying that Bernie was you know, more significant than Obama, but I'm saying that he has done a lot as an individual to move the conversation uh, and in a more progressive direction and achieve the objectives that he set out to achieve. Now that we have a Democratic nominee so early in the primary uh, season calendar, I just want to get your thoughts on the importance of party unity. You're sort of reading a lot about this um, in the media at the moment, and perhaps for the folks at home to give some sort of context of the lack of party unity that has plagued previous primary seasons. And I'm speaking of the 2008 primary season for the Democratic Party and 2016. Um, what, uh, with Bernie not only suspe- suspending his campaign so early in the calendar and also so quickly coming out and endorsing Biden, um, as opposed to what's happened in previous ones. Look, at the last time we actually had a, a primary season wrap up so quickly was 2004 with John Kerry. Um, how, how united do you think the Democratic Party is now and how important is that if it is the case? Well, I think, um, you know, on paper, the Democratic Party is um, pretty united. Uh, the, the top levels of it certainly are. Um, but I think, you know, at least in 2020 party unity is in the eye of the beholder. I think, uh, it would be, uh, revisionist history to say in 2016 that the Republican party was unified behind Donald Trump. 
Um, so I think since this will be our first like truly online election, uh, I'd be concerned if I were the Biden campaign about the dissension specifically within uh, the left online. Uh, now, there is a whole saying about how like Twitter is not real life and things of that nature. But it, what would give me pause on the Biden campaign is that um, there is some continuing dissension, especially, especially among um, Bernie support, you know, prominent Bernie supporters and, and campaign alumni who have large followings and are influential and have quick access to media, which will pick up their message and amplify it. The media really wants to um, push that storyline of dissension within the Democratic Party and Bernie people not lining up behind Biden. And, you know, that's just an objective pattern that we see. And, you know, that's still very much a thing. And so while the top level of party unity or while the top level of the Democratic Party appears to be very unified, I'd be concerned about especially some of the um, dissension and the grassroots online. Now, here is why this matters, because in the past, party unity has been really important for uh, fundraising, especially. Each candidate would be able to get their big dollar fundraisers behind the eventual nominee, and that results in this big pool of cash that can be, then be used to get the nominee over the hump who can carry all these down-ballot races. Uh, that dynamic doesn't exist anymore. And uh, what I think candidates really have to rely on going forward is the ability to disseminate their message online because the message – more than anything, is going to be what drives fundraising and the sense of momentum now. And so uh, that is something that sticks out to me as a red flag. You know, I think it's important that optically the party is unified up top, but we will see over the coming months uh, how significant it is that there appears to be some um, squeaky wheels on the internet. Uh, we'll talk about uh, moving campaigns to the online space uh, a little bit later. Um, and uh, before we do that, I, I just want to get a sense from you about um, the actual sort of top line general um, observations of the, the the contest between Biden and Trump. It's 194 days till election day what do you perceive as the battleground states that are crucial for a biden victory in november well i think it's going to be sort of old faithful there uh it's going to be wisconsin michigan ohio florida and pennsylvania and we're going to see uh whether or not um biden has what it takes to sort of carry those but um if I look at some of the fundamentals of his campaign and what's going to matter in this election, you know, does he have the reach online? Does he have the mass appeal? Uh, I don't think he has what it takes to sort of push the map, expand the electorate or expand the map in states like in the, what I would call frontier swing states, uh, Arizona, North Carolina, Texas, even 
Um, so I think it's going to continue to be a tight election. Um, and it's going to come down to those four, uh, that are going to be most significant, which are Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Florida, and Pennsylvania. And in terms of the sort of the messaging and uh, policy frame, how should Biden be framing up Trump in the early days of this campaign, particularly given that what's going on right now in the country and the thing that's taking everyone's attention, that is the coronavirus? You know, that's a really, really good question. Um, you know, Trump sort of built himself up um, as someone who could, who was going to fight for this sort of forgotten class of people. And I think, uh, you know, the most effective way to sort of cut Trump down to size is to point him out that he's a, he sold you out. He only cares about sort of like the rich people in this country, at least with the policies that he's pursued. If you look at um, things such, his only major legislative accomplishment, the only one, was that um, tax bill that he passed back in 2017, where sort of like nine, like the ninety percent of the benefits of that bill went to the top, top one, up one percent of holders of wealth in the United States. Uh, he has been trying to dismantle uh, health insurance in this country as we know it. He has, his administration has filed lawsuits to get rid of the Affordable Care Act in its entirety, which, among other things, was particularly significant because it's the first time ever that an insurance company has not been able to uh, deny you coverage for pre-existing conditions, things such as high blood pressure, high cholesterol, family history, even uh, being a woman. Um, these are all things that counted as pre-existing conditions. So he has pursued uh, policies that have sold people out in this country and have benefited only the wealthiest among us. And the next thing that I think you have to point out in a very clear way is he's a horrible deal maker. Uh, every single deal that he has has seemed to blow up in his face and has made America weaker. And then an, another thing uh, that I think we need to really realize as a country is that we are fully isolated on, in the international community, and then that matters. Um, we don't have the influence that we have had throughout presidencies of both administer of both parties, and, and we have never been more impotent uh, geopolitically ever. But I think what it really comes down to um, is that. He really has sold people out and he's way in over his head, has no idea what he's doing. And unfortunately, uh, what we're living through with the coronavirus pandemic is bringing that into relief. It's a really weird position that I find uh, Trump in at the moment, um, because in 2016, he was the clear, he positioned himself as a clear outsider candidate, the anti-establishment candidate, and spoke to a lot of the concerns at that time amongst the electorate that w were losing faith in um, in, in the establishment and in uh, 
um, bodies and entities, including government, that uh, once we trusted, and there was a lot of there's a bit, a bit of research into that. That you know, at that time in 2016, uh, people had less faith in establishments and government than ever before. Um, but now, fast forward to 2020, and, and this was written about at, at some point when people were looking for glimmers of hope in sort of 2017. They were saying, "Well, you know, he framed himself as a person who was the outsider, but by 2020, he will be a person who has will be owning a lot of the things that he had done as the man that sit, sits in uh, the White House, um, and that he is now the establishment." Uh, but Right now, it seems to be that he's trying to play both sides of the road because every day he's giving you know daily coronavirus briefings in the White House, standing next to medical experts, directing everyone to stay at home. But at the same time, he's also tweeting uh, to his base, calling on to liberate Virginia, Michigan, and Minnesota. Um, how can he successfully disown the responsibilities of his own administration's slow and costly response to the spread of the virus? Do you think he's going to have the ability, the the agility more so, to play both sides of the street, to both be anti-establishment but also at the same time, you know, be the guy that's in the White House? Can he pull that off? You know, time will tell. Uh, and I, I wish I had a better answer for you. I think, like uh, – it's really hard for me to look at the facts, to look at what we have been living through and to say that this has been good, mm. to say in any way that he should continue to be in charge. Like it is objectively awful, bad. And um, time will tell whether or not he is going to be held to account for that at the ballot box. Uh, but I can tell you that I don't think it's going to be the body count that's going to be what gets him in what um, is going to be what gets him in trouble with voters, sadly. Mm. Uh, I think it's going to be the cumulative cost of this whole experience. Um, It's going to be the uh, loss of loved ones that we feel uh, and, you know, Democrats, Republicans, we've all lost people to this virus and it's affecting us in very, very real ways. And then, you know, I think it's also separated us from sort of what gives us purpose in this country. And it's the ability to have community, to go to work, to make an honest living and have an identity for yourself based on like what you do and how you contribute. And you know, the more, the longer we are cut off from that, I think the more frustration there will be in his inability to give us hope that we're going to get out of this. I think we as a country understand that he is not responsible for uh, – the virus existing and for the virus being present in this country. It was always going to come here. I think where we get frustrated is that we have been slow footed to um, respond to this. We have fared far worse than any other country on the planet. And that's just an objective fact. Mm. And that undercuts directly his jingoistic machismo, America first, we're the greatest in the world. And the longer we go through this 
And if there is not a quick rebound economically, and if there is not a, um, and if there, maybe if there, it comes back worse in the, in the fall and winter, you know, I, I think there will be, um, real frustration with him. And so that's why I think it's really important for Biden and the Democrats to really say how much he has sold the people out of this country. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, if you were to look at a campaign and set it up, um, for an election victory for a social democratic party or a center left party, um, all of the, uh, ingredients are, I think, ready to walk well, in, walk in, I, walk in a win on tech on, a, you know, in a, in a textbook scenario. And I know that. I, I think I would just push you, push back on that in the sense that, um, the textbook doesn't exist anymore. No. Old vo- it's an old volume. Yeah. Uh, yeah We're uh, in totally uncharted territory. Yeah, absolutely. And you, your, your question was, you know, um, not to Sam explain to you, Stephen, but your question was, uh, you know, can he successfully disown responsibility for this? Um, I think when you look at this, you know, what's interesting about this being a online election is that more than ever, the media environment really matters. And so far, Trump has been able to get endless free coverage day after day, just like in 2016 of these cable news channels covering him every single day where he gets to spout off disinformation, bully reporters, uh, disown facts and decisions that he's made, and, and, and divert. And, and in some cases, literally, in uh, in one uh, press conference. Slide. Yeah, I saw, you know, there was one where he said one fact, and then 10 minutes later claimed that he didn't say that. It's amazing. Like Normally, he waits two or three days before he makes up new bullshit, but he was actually doing it physically in the same day. And so this is why that matters is because a tons like millions of people see this in real time. And then from there, uh, it gets sort of chopped up online and recycled through these, uh, online communities, um, on various platforms. And, you know, that feeds into the conversations that people have offline and and this broader narrative and it becomes sort of this mimetic phenomenon Mm -hmm. And that is what I think is like truly fascinating about this. Um, it's a totally asymmetrical information environment that we're dealing with. And so if Trump has anything going for him, it's the fact that he is able to command endless amounts of attention uh, from traditional media and then uh, the unique ways that traditional media feeds uh, online information consumption habits. So we spoke a bit about Trump uh, and the strengths and weaknesses of uh, his campaign going into the election proper. Uh, let's t- turn our attention to Biden. Um, and let's start by, uh, and I know we're going to talk more about sort of online campaigning here, but let's talk about the strengths of the the Biden campaign as we stand right now. What what are what are the assets that Joe's got going for him? Well, um, I think 
it's really important to talk about first what he doesn't have going for him. No, no, uh, that wasn't my question. <laughs> you know, I'm forcing you to say some good positive things about Joe Biden before we go in to talk about what, what are his, what I, I are will, his weaknesses. I will get there. I will get there. <laughs> All right. Fair um, enough. Go for it. The reason, the reason why I'm going to start off by what he doesn't have for him uh, is because I think it's far more significant than what he does have going for him. What he does not have going for him uh, is scale. So uh, traditionally, you've been able to buy scale right online or within like media first campaigns you've been able to buy it just by flooding pouring hundreds of millions billions of dollars into buying tv commercials radio commercials uh whatever now you can't do that as much and so his reach is considerably smaller than trump's uh he's got around like six million followers across all the major uh, online platforms, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Trump has over a hundred million. So he's got more than 12 times the reach of Biden. Hmm. You know, it's kind of like crazy. But Just any, online. anyone that was going to go up against Trump was always going to be, was always going to have a deficit in that respect. True, but they had a broader reach than Biden. And beyond that, Biden is, uh, in the whole several hundreds of millions of dollars. Like Trump has, has a beat by $137 million online or uh, just, uh, in terms of cash and fundraising, which allows him to buy more effective, uh, ads online because they're cheaper and they're cheaper because his ads generate more engagement. Now, Trump also has this thing where he incites a visceral reaction of anybody, right? And the way that our online platforms exist is that they sort of reward the sort of like tribal, uh, this tribal sort of feeling that we have and we react very strongly to things. And the more strongly that we react to things, the wider something is disseminated. If Biden has anything going for him, it is the fact that he's very famous and his fame, the fact that he's been around for a really long time will enable him to overcome those very real and structural disadvantages in a way that someone like Pete couldn't, like Mayor Pete, right, or Amy Klobuchar or Kamala Harris. I think um, another thing that he has going for him is that he appears to be a very safe choice. You know, I think when people – you know, make America great again sort of is this uh, call to some like time uh, or some past that maybe never even really existed. And I think um, it's not hard to see Biden outside of that past that maybe we're trying to reclaim. And, and people feel sort of comfortable with that. Uh, and maybe they're, you know, that's what he had going for him over 
Bernie Sanders is that people felt just feel more comfortable with him. And so I think if he's going to overcome Trump, it's not necessarily going to be because of his message or a superior campaign that he's run. I, I think it's it, it may have to do with the fact that, you know, he just is at the right place at finally the right time. Mm. So it would be fair to say that for a – if we're trying to – if you're the campaign manager for either, either of the two campaigns and you're trying to work out what your campaign looks like leading into November, you're going to have to make contingency plans that are operating under the assumption that the restrictions that are currently in place, certainly in the states that are battleground states, um, that those restrictions or some form of restriction will remain in place for a large part of the calendar year remaining. Um, you know, we may get to a stage in October, November, where people physically can, um, you know, be in more public spaces. But certainly you'd say through to, so we're in April now, May, June, July, you'd imagine for the next two or three months that these strict restrictions are going to remain in place. So therefore it's going to be difficult for well, the, can- I, I the, think, can- the candidates to get I think what you're actually likely to see, at least in the United States, Stephen, Stephen is, um, you know, uh, uh, an uneven approach. Um, and some states are going to open up more liberally and fully than others. And that's going to accelerate the spread of this virus. And so I think what we're going to really be experiencing is um, this peak and valley uh, sort of experience heading into the fall where we think that we're out of the woods, but then it proves that we're not. Yeah. Um, And then I think you layer on top of this uh, the fact that we don't have the scale of testing that is truly required from a public health standpoint to contain this, um, you know, it's it's going to be yeah, it's going to be really stressful and hard. Um, but uh, what I was trying to get to is that if you're the campaign manager, you're going to have to make adjustments to your campaign from a traditional campaign playbook. You won't be able to. Um, yeah, There's so, going to be no Fourth of July parade. Yeah, you're not, be in a, you're not flying the door knocking. You're not flying the candidates around to to do rallies and then do follow ups, sort of stump no speech way. announcements and that kind of stuff. So a lot of it, as you said, is going to move. And maybe on. that benefits Biden. Well, that's right. I want to get your thoughts yeah. on that. So you moved to a campaign certainly for the next two or three months that are predominantly online. How do you get your candidate? How do you get Joe um, media time? How do you, you know, how do you front foot your announcements? Um, how do you disseminate that message out and replace, you know, you know canvassing traditional sort of door knocks with uh, other forms of direct voter contact? Talk us through the ways in which you would look to run a campaign that is more digitally focused um, with a candidate um, than you would normally do. So that's a really, really good question. And I think, you know, just going back to something that you said just at the start of that is, um, you know, maybe you know, we're, candidates aren't doing big rallies and they're not really, you know, uh, sort of in front of a lot of people. And maybe that's actually a benefit to Biden because that exposes Trump. And the more Trump becomes exposed and associated with uh, this awful virus, 
uh, people just get pissed and want, want to get him out of there. Um, I think, look, let's talk about like how it's different for me in the most fundamental way that is different is that it's harder to model the outcome of a truly online campaign. The data that you're going to generate from voter contact is probably not as reliable it's harder to predict voter patterns because you can't do any sort of voter contact. Uh, so it's going to be harder to model, I think. Um, now, I think, why is it important that this is a sort of a digital-first campaign? Why is it important that this is uh, a fully online election? I think um, you know, it's the 80s all over again in the sense that it's fully a media campaign. Uh, it's going to be battled out totally. Um, I think there's, there's the main battle is going to be fought, uh, in the arena of information and, you know, you're not really going to be able to rely on that three to 5% bump from voter contact that you would normally. And this is important because, we don't know how it's going to affect down ballot races. Organizing has been important to get candidates over the hump for sure. But there's this follow on effect of helping out people who are running for Senate or state assembly. And this is particularly important in 2020 because it's a census year. And what they do in the United States every year after the census is taken is redraw state legislature boundaries and these state legislature boundaries, uh, sort of determine the comp, the partisan composition of, uh, of that state's, uh, legislature. And they also determine the proportion of, uh, of uh, voters that sort of go towards re- traditionally Republican congressional districts and Democratic congressional districts. So it's, it's highly consequential. And then um, it, fundraising is going to be really important, but not in the way that we traditionally understand it. So the way that campaigns are fought in the United States, at least when it comes to fundraising, it's who can build the biggest war chest and that's important because historically, if you've been able to build like a huge war chest, you've been able to sort of um, uh, you've been able to sort of like run all these TV ads. But the reason why it's important here is because you're able to sort of flood all these social media platforms with ads and um, really disseminate your message that way. So I think. Um, to the extent that Biden's online campaign will differ from Trump's, it's going to be smaller scale uh, and fundraising uh, is going to be way smaller because his content is going to generate less reaction and therefore his message is going to get out less and people are going to be less excited to donate. Uh, How much can we read into the most recent uh, primary uh, and elections that were held in Wisconsin in early April? Uh, obviously there was the primary that existed between, um, smoke and Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. 
Um, but there was also other uh, elections taking place for local government elections in Wisconsin between Republicans and Democrats, and that was part of the reason why the Republican um, – it's a state – Wisconsin's a Democratic state legislator in which they were trying to extend the – what's referred to in, in the U.S. you call them mail-in ballots in Australia, we just call them postal voting, but they were trying to extend the, the postal voting timeline for folks to send in their ballots – out to sort of later um, April to give people an opportunity to actually cast their vote because of the fact that the state was in lockdown, um, and it was that the it was then sent to the U.S. Supreme Court and was overturned by um, along partisan lines that forced people to either go out and vote uh, and break uh, these sort of curfews. Um, and there was a the politics behind it was is that the, there was actually an election for correct me if I'm wrong, Sam, but I think there was a Republican who was running for their local um, a local court. Um, no, uh, the state supreme court. State so, supreme court. Uh, that's right. Yeah. So they so wanted the to get they, wa- states. they wanted to get their guy up, and they thought by forcing people to, they thought that mail in extending the balloting time for mail in ballots would help the Democrats to enforce a turnout election, but. It backfired, and the Democrats won. Is the Wisconsin primary, or is, is, is this election in Wisconsin a bit of a window into what we can see in terms of campaign infrastructure replicated for the Republicans and the Democrats in November? Well, I would say for Democrats it should be encouraging, and then I would draw a hard stop right there. Uh, it should be encouraging, but here's where I would uh, sort of qualify that. Uh, it was a total protest election. Now, it was a presidential primary. Trump was not on the primary. You know, he's not being primaried. Uh, it was drawing Democrats out. And then there was this drama that literally played out the day before the election that was really easy to sort of spin as GOP trying to prevent Democratic turnout. And because it was a total protest election, that means the limitation is that this was an election for the total diehards, people who really wanted to sort of like be involved in choosing the Democratic nominee or sort of like vote for uh, the state Supreme Supreme Court seat. So it's hard to see um, the term that's used is the mushy middle. Mm. We don't necessarily – this isn't a um, clear eye into where the full electorate is sitting. What I think should be encouraging is that uh, – there is enough motivation among Democratic voters to go out there and just get this done, to just turn out and vote and get people over the top. Now, whether or not there were some very unique circumstances that contributed to uh, the Democrats winning in that election. Um, so it's really hard to extrapolate those results and transpose them on the election in November. Well, we've got another 190-odd days to ponder and discuss and dissect this campaign. Uh, We certainly appreciate your time uh, this evening over in uh, New England and Vermont 
to talk to us today about uh, the forthcoming election. Um, I know we're going to get you back on again um, in the weeks and the months to come, uh, but it's a start. We've now got two. It's down to two, uh, two people: red versus blue, GOP versus Democrat, old versus new. Um, and I look forward to uh, I look forward to hearing your um, very rosy glass half full uh, um, viewpoints about the 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 Biden campaign in the coming weeks and months. Well, he's going to ta- have to top up my glass. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> oh, I didn't pick that if up I, at all in the last fifty I, minutes. If I'm going to give you the glass half full. Uh, look, I mean, dude, I we're looking for hope here, man. Come on, I know. No, I'll, I'll say this, Stephen. You know, I'm not clearly. I'm going to vote for him. Clearly, I'm going to like sort of do what I can. Clearly, uh, you're going to end up in Nevada again, running what? another campaign. What's that? I said, clearly, you're going to end up in Nevada again. Yeah, yeah. I, I think like another thing that he has to his benefit is that you know, um, over the past several years, Democratic candidates have been building up. Uh, this sort of like digital organizing infrastructure that is, you know, we haven't talked about it in this conversation, but it's a really important detail. And, uh, you know, I think the Democrats have uh, an outreach infrastructure to really do persuasion online. And um, we're going to begin to see, you know, whether or not that sort of like direct voter contact, direct voter contact traditionally, which is like door knocking and calling people on the phone has been really important um, for this whole idea of what we call list building. And that means you're able to sort of like understand list building is like, okay, I've got this many supporters. And based on my conversations, my opponent has that many supporters. But now we're finally going to be able to have the ability to sort of not only do list building, but also potentially some persuasive voter contact. And it'll be interesting to see whether or not uh, Biden is able to sort of marshal the resources mm. that have come up from the bottom up aspect of the Democratic Party through various campaigns be it Bernie's campaign, Beto's, Beto O'Rourke's campaign in 2018 was very influential in this. Can Biden, is he, is he as a person, as a leader of his campaign and, and party, uh, sort of attuned to this dynamic enough to marshal those resources? That's, that's a really key question. Well, maybe- um, I'm not, you know, I, I think time will tell, uh, you know, Biden was on the ropes for a long, long time in that primary and sort of squeaked it out. And so, uh, we will see whether he's able to sort of drum up some genuine enthusiasm. I think any successful campaign has to be able to draw an effective contrast from their opponent. So far, amidst the coronavirus pandemic. You cannot say that Joe Biden has been drawing that contrast. If anyone has been drawing the contrast between Trump and Biden, it has been Trump. Now, whether that will come out to be Trump's to Trump's benefit, that is the question. So we'll see how this turns out. 
Well, we uh, will have to organise another time in the coming weeks to just check in with you and see how things are going. Um, like I said before, we do appreciate your time. So much more to talk about in this campaign, both uh, from an organising standpoint and from you know messaging and fundraising and uh, and everything else that goes into what is uh, a fascinating election process. Thanks very much, Sam, for coming on today's uh, episode. Look after yourself and your family and your friends, and uh, we'll um, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot. Uh, it's always good to, uh, to chat with you and, uh, you know, uh, my best to everyone down there in Australia as you guys uh, battle coronavirus as well. Cheers. Cheers.